For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. Welcome to Turning Point. If the only time you worship God is during your weekly church service, you're reducing it to an event. Worship is meant to be a lifestyle. Today, Dr. David Jeremiah examines what God's Word says about worshiping beyond the walls of the church. If that's been a challenge, then stay tuned as David introduces today's message, Worship at Home and on the Road. And thank you for joining us today for the Friday edition of Turning Point. Uh, We're going to discover today that worship isn't just what we do on Sunday, but worship is a lifestyle. Our whole life is an act of worship toward God, if we understand how the Bible uh, explains it. We will get to our lesson in a moment, but as we come to this Friday edition, some reminders for all of you. Our fall rally dates are uh, coming fast, and they'll be upon us before you know it. October the 6th, we're going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina at the PNC Arena. October the 13th in Orlando, Florida at the Amway Center. Uh, October the 20th, all these are Thursday dates, uh, in Greenville, South Carolina at the Bon Secours Wellness Arena. And then the one Friday date is November 11th in Buffalo, New York at the Key Bank Center. Um, you can get your tickets from davidjeremiah.org. You have to have a ticket, but the tickets are free. So go to davidjeremiah.org slash tour, order the tickets you need, and we'll make sure you get them in plenty of time so that you can be a part of these great nights of celebration with special guests uh, this year that we have not had before. We're going to have a great time of celebrating. We're all so tired of not being able to go to events like this, and so we decided to really pull out all the stops. Uh, We're going to have... uh, beautiful lights. Uh, We're going to have a lot of special things in these events, and I hope you'll come and be with us if we come to your community. And then uh, in December, we're going on our Caribbean cruise, which we do every year right after Christmas. The 28th of December through the 4th of January, uh, we'll be um, having a great time together with a bunch of God's people and uh, Michael Sanchez and his band and all of us together worshiping the Lord and studying his word. So I hope that you will join us then. In the meantime, let's get started with this lesson called Worship at Home and on the Road, and let's find out how we can carry our worship home with us when we leave the church. The castle, it was said, was among the most elegant in the world. Its turrets dominated the medieval sky, and the bright banners of the kingdom could be seen for miles. Everything sparkled and shone, everything but the gloomy face of the king himself. The old monarch truly loved his people. He enjoyed their humble ways and their ready humor, and he longed to hear the tales of their daily adventures. But few of the common folk were ever seen near the palace. For one thing, they were busy with their own daily schedules. For another, the gleaming citadel made them painfully aware of their lowly peasantry. Royal things just seemed to make them very uncomfortable. So the good citizens ignored the king's eager invitations to come and visit. 
even to enjoy his hospitality at royal functions. The people loved their king, all right, but they just preferred to love him from a distance. And the king came to realize that if the people wouldn't come to him, he would have to go to them. So he instructed his assistants to stay behind, and he walked alone to the town square. Naturally enough, the merchants and children recognized him immediately, and a hush fell over them. As they watched nervously, the king stooped down and began to play a game with two of the children. Soon there were crowds of children all around him, and the men and the women began to draw nearer too. As the hours passed, the people found themselves coming to feel more comfortable with their king than they had ever felt before. In the past, he had been something of a distant rumor, but now he was in the very midst of them, laughing and telling wonderful stories. They could see the twinkle in his eye. All the people marveled at his wisdom. Many shared their problems with him, and he seemed to always have a good solution. Most of all, a great love began to grow between the people and the king. When the sun finally set, a lively crowd surrounded the king, and someone said, Your Majesty, please remain among us. We never wish to leave your presence again, for we never knew how kind and joyful and wise you were. And the king smiled and replied, From the most ancient of traditions, I must make my home in a palace of splendor. But I am going to leave you with a very special gift. And with that gift, you will be able to always be in touch with me. And with that, the king produced a small flute. He placed it in the hands of a young girl. He said, when you return to your homes, each of you will find waiting for you a flute with your own name engraved upon it. Whenever any one of you plays the simple melody that I will teach you, I will hear you and I will come. This is the praise song of the king, and it will bring me to you wherever you are. Your king's greatest desire, and I hope you will never forget it, is your own friendship and companionship. And at that moment, the little girl's curiosity got the better of her, and she gently lifted the flute to her lips and puffed a breath into the flute, and the sound that emerged stopped all conversation. It was the most exquisite music that any of them had ever heard. As they soon understood, the king's very heart and soul were in the melody. It was as if great clouds drifted suddenly from their eyes and the people could truly and clearly see their king for the first time. All they had shared before was merely like child's play. Now from the flute of a child came something both joyful and serious. The melody told them who their king was, and therefore it told them who they were. Now that's the parable, and here's the principle. I expect you've already worked out in your mind the meaning of my little story. In every sense, God, our king, has come to us because we would not come to him. He has done so through what we call the incarnation God becoming flesh, dressing himself in humble human flesh to dwell among us. This is what Paul was trying to get across to the Philippian believers when he wrote the wonderful words of the second chapter that read like this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God coming to us. And that's the meaning of the first part of the story. A king who loved his subjects so much that when they would not come to him, he came to them. But the implication of the story goes much deeper and the story doesn't end with him simply coming to be with his people. The story has a truth that is expressed in a startling concept that predates even Bethlehem. I want you to wrap your mind thoroughly around this idea. God makes his home in our worship. God has given us an instrument for knowing him. An instrument every bit as wonderful as the flute the little girl played. He has given us worship. And we ought to keep in the very center of our attention a little verse of scripture that captures this concept so beautifully. It's Psalm 22 verse 3. And this is what it says. But thou art holy O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. That's from the old King James Version of the Bible. Another translation puts it this way. The praises of Israel are your home. Literally what the text is saying is that God makes his home in the worship and in the praise that we offer to him in his name. The word that we find in the Hebrew language here is translated to sit down, to remain, to settle. God sits down, he remains, he settles in when we worship him and when we praise him. One author has described what happens in these words. Listen, praise is where God lives. It is his permanent address. Praise is his home element God is at home when we praise him. And this settles one of the vast mysteries which accompanies praise. Why is it that so many things happen when we praise God? Why does healing come on the wings of praise? Why is it that when we praise God, things change? Why are we changed? The simple answer is, while God is everywhere, he is not everywhere manifest, but he is manifest in his praise. When we worship him, whether individually or corporately, God comes to us on the wings of praise. I've often quoted C.S. Lewis, one of the great thinkers of another generation. He was a man who sought after God intellectually and very often that does not lead one to the presence of God but through his mind and then ultimately through his heart C.S. Lewis became a Christian and he wrote in his book Reflections on the Psalms about this particular passage in Psalm 22 he said when I first began to draw near to belief in God I did not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men it is not, of course, the only way, he wrote. But for many people at many times, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly only when they worship him. Now here's his concept. Listen carefully. Even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but that by their doing so, God 
gave himself to them. We often think of the Old Testament sacrificial system of people bringing sacrifices to God and appeasing God or sacrificing for the ultimate atonement of their sins which was to take place in the future. But C.S. Lewis reminds us that when they came with their sacrifices to God, not only did they give to God, but in the very act of worship, God gave himself to them. And I think that's what this psalm is all about. That when we worship God, God manifests his presence in our midst. And we have noticed that here on occasion. Perhaps you've noticed it in your own personal life when for some particular reason that you didn't even understand, you had a time of reflection and worship before God that was very unique. And if someone would ask you, what was it like? You would say, well, you know, it was like God was sitting right there in the midst of what I was doing. Sometimes when we worship God, we offer up massive praise to him. It's as if God enters into the sanctuary and is in our very presence. And that's a wonderful truth for us to remember. That wherever we are, whatever we do, whatever God allows in our life, through the immediacy of praise and worship, we can sense the nearness of God in our life. Well, you say, Pastor Jeremiah, that's all well and good, but if worship is such a high priority and the thing for which we've been created, and if God comes to us in our worship, then how is it that we should worship? Worship is not primarily about music, though. That's one part of it. Worship is about your attitude, my attitude, our relationship personally with Almighty God. It overflows into the massive praise and worship we enjoy in church, but it starts, it emanates from the heart we have for God. In order for us to understand how worship works and how God wants it to work in our lives, I want to share with you three metaphors, three illustrations, and I'm going to do this quickly. But I believe if you will listen carefully and follow the logic that I create here, you will understand what I'm talking about when I talk about worship as a way of life. First of all, I'm sure most of you have heard it said by preachers or you've read it in books that your body is where God dwells, where the Holy Spirit, he lives within our bodies. We become Christians and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. The first metaphor is your body as a home or as a house. And perhaps the best way for me to illustrate that is to remind you of a little booklet that circulated throughout Christendom for many years, and it's still available. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Munger. If you've read that book, you know that it's a wonderful little illustration of what happens to us when we become Christians. The Bible tells us when we become Christians, God comes to live within us. And as he comes to live within us, he begins to take possession of us. And Munger takes us on a journey through all the different rooms of the house, the living room and the kitchen and the family room and all the rooms. And what he says is that as God comes to take up residence in our house, he wants to be able to occupy the entire house. He wants the freedom to move into every room in our house. We can't lock any doors off to God. If he's going to be truly the Lord of our life, he's also the landlord of our house and he has access to every part of who we are. The rooms, of course, are simply symbols of the different segments of our lives. And when we give Jesus lordship, he takes control of our body, our house, where he lives. But the second metaphor takes it to another level. Our body is not just a house 
where God lives. But if you read the letters of Paul to the Corinthian believers, you discover that our body is also a temple. That might take some of you by surprise that your body is a temple, but that's what God says. And he wrote this truth to a group of people who were kind of Sabbath-only Christians. By that I mean they gathered for religious services, but it had no impact on their life, and they went out and lived lives that were very derelict and disobedient and sinful. So the book of 1 Corinthians is written to a group of people who quote-unquote are Christians but aren't living like it. And when Paul wrote his first letter to them, it was a sizzling letter of rebuke. And this is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul said to the Corinthian believers, your body's not just a house where God lives. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And what the message in this was for the Corinthians, and surely for us today as well, was stop holding out on God. He doesn't want just the occupation key to your house. He wants it all. Nominal Christianity is of no interest to him. He wants your body, your soul, your spirit, signed, sealed, and delivered. No conditions, no qualifications. When he takes possession, he will convert you to a temple where he is at home. If God owns you, you are his temple. Now, we've gotten two metaphors. We are the house in which God lives. Our body is the temple where the spirit of God lives. But there's one third metaphor that I've never really heard of or seen in this particular category. Your body is a house. Your body is a temple. And for all of you who are campers, this will delight you. Your body is a tent. Did you know that? Your body is a tent. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, where did you dream that up? Well, I didn't dream it up. I read it in the scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, who by the way was a tent maker, Paul speaks of the body as an earthly tent. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 and 4. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. And then in verse 4 he says, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. He's using a tent as an illustration of our body. Peter picks up the same analogy over in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. What is he saying? He's saying his body is a tent. It's like a tent. Now what's the difference between a tent and a temple and a house? Well, a house and a temple are somewhat permanent. A tent is anything but that. A tent is what you use when you're going to move from one place to the other. The Israelites used tents when they camped in the wilderness for all those years. In fact, one of the tents in the Israelite congregation served as a temple. In that tent was enshrined the Ark of the Covenant, which was the personal representation of the presence of God. And they moved their tent temple from place to place as they journeyed across the wilderness. And I think what Paul is saying to us by using that term in his writings is that you and I are not just a house where God lives, a temple where the Spirit lives, but we are a tent on the move 
and God's presence is with us, we are really people of God who move about in society and wherever we go, we take God with us. We are temples on wheels, if you will. And what God wants to communicate to us about worship men and women is we have to take the show on the road. We can't lock it in on Sunday morning and walk away from it and then go out and act as if he doesn't live within us. Because wherever we go in these tents of ours, he goes with us. And it's up to us to develop a lifestyle of worship so that we can glorify God in our bodies and in our spirits, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20. It's not enough for us to be simply worshipers on Sunday morning. God wants us to take worship wherever we go. Worship is not an act or an experience. It's a lifestyle. Have you ever noticed how many times in Paul's letters he uses the word always? He always uses the word always. (laughs) Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, Ephesians 5.20. Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and 17, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul uses the phrase without ceasing on five separate occasions in regard to praying for others, remembering others, thanking God and praying in general. And while we put all these references together, his picture of the Christian life is one of unbroken prayer, worship, and communion wherever we go. You say, well, Pastor Jeremiah, you just lost me because I can't live that way. And you know, it's easy for us to stop for a moment and think we can't live that way. He's not talking about us walking around mouthing mantras. He's not asking us to walk around with our eyes upturned, looking holy. He's not telling us to screw our halos down, tie it on our heads so everybody will know who we are. He's saying that if you truly have a lifestyle of worship, it affects everything you do, everywhere you go, just as the tent moving across the ground. We love Munger's analogy because it's comforting and warm. Jesus is our best friend living in our house. We're also concerned with worshiping him, and so the temple thing is really special. But God is not interested in us simply being static in our worship. He wants us to be dynamic. He wants us to carry the presence of Jesus wherever we go. I told you some time ago that I was invited to talk at the Scripps Clinic with a rabbi who had lymphoma at the same time I did, and we were each to give our story of cancer and then how it affected our faith. It was quite an interesting experience because while we were both from religious circles, our approach to it was so diametrically polarized that it was like, it was was just really interesting. And I have to tell you, I had no idea what was going to happen that night. And I was nervous. I really was nervous. I had this picture in my mind that I was going to be the lone Christian in this situation. And I was going to walk into this environment and these guys were just all going to be out there ready to get me. So on the way over, Donna was in the car with me, and we were praying. And I want to encourage you that I had my eyes open when I was praying. We were driving to the hospital, 
And I don't remember ever praying this before. I don't know where it came from, but it was certainly the prayer of my heart. Oh, God, somehow help us to bring the presence of Jesus into this situation we're going to. That's what I prayed. That's all I could think to pray. But you know what? Isn't that what we ought to pray every day, wherever we go, where you work, what you do, what God has called you? Say, oh, I work in the most ungodly circumstance. Well, then all the more, bring the presence of Jesus into that circumstance. And you know, I believe that's uh, the, the great message of what it means not just to worship Him, but to, to live for Him every day and, and to do things that are unusual, to, to help people that need your help, whether they ask for it or not, to walk into situations and imagine, what would Jesus do if He were here? How would He respond to this? And when you do that, you're actually bringing honor and glory to the Lord. You're representing Him as His great ambassador. And more than likely, you're going to make an impact on some people who uh, are looking everywhere for help these days. There's never been a more hungry civilization for something meaningful and real than there is today. And we know Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's available to all who will come. He makes the invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Well, uh, I hope you have a good weekend. I hope you have a good day. And uh, be sure to go to church. I'll see you right here on Monday for the next edition of Turning Point as we continue learning how to worship. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, My Heart's Desire, please visit our website. There you will also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, be sure to ask for your copy of our 14-month calendar for 2023, Moving Mountains, filled with inspiring scriptures and images to encourage you in your walk. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions. Available in several handsome cover options. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, My Heart's Desire, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com Bible. That's airshipgenesis.com Bible. If I undergo brain surgery, I want my surgeon to be a critic who looks for the tiniest flaw and fault. The same with the pilot who is flying any airplane I'm on. 
Criticism and fault-finding are commendable traits in the right setting. But when it comes to finding faults in human beings, someone has well said that our tool of choice should be a mirror rather than a pair of binoculars. Isn't that what Jesus said? He put it this way, Deal with the log in your own eye before pointing out and removing the tiny speck in someone else's eye. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's grace when it comes to faults on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.